good morning to all of you. Uh, second uh, Sunday of the year, I, I had to reboot my computer, uh, so uh, you got to wait for that to come up a little bit. But if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Luke this morning. Not Isaiah, but Luke, but Luke. We, uh, <clears throat> we will not be going through Isaiah this week nor next week or the next uh, four months or so, uh, and we plan to come back to the book in a little, and when I, probably sometime in May, and so I hope that uh, you can be patient and not be too anxious as you are waiting to see how the book ends. But you can read ahead if you wish, and that always would be good. This morning we'll be in the 24th chapter of Luke, and we'll be at the very last several passages, verses 44 through 49, Uh, Luke 24, verse 44 through 49, Uh, yeah, you know, I smell it too, so, you know. Not sure what it is. I, I trust our trustworthy men are looking into that and making sure that the church is not on fire. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and that we can open up your book. Truths from the Old Testament, truths from the New Testament. Lord, it all is your truth, all inspired by you. Inspired by uh, you, given to us uh, as a word of prophecy, word of revelation, that we might know who you are, that we might know your will, that we might know who we are, and that we might know who we ought to be in light of your word. Thank you, Lord, for this book. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your son. All these things we give praise because we know that without any of them, we would not be able to come before you now and open your book and understand your book. We pray that your, that your spirit would fill us and lead us and guide us and teach us your truths this morning, cause us to be convicted of truths that we need to understand. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus even this morning, that you would cause them to hear these truths and for the first time that you would bring, cause their hearts to be made new as they respond, and then that they would respond to your truths. We pray that you would be glorified as we study your word. Help us to understand your, your great mission for us as a church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 49. Jesus speaking here. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. 
At the beginning of each year, I like to take a few sermons to cover what we call our mission, vision, values of SF Bible. They are sort of uh, our, our purpose, our goals, our aims, our desires, and the things that are important to us as a church that characterize this church of Jesus Christ. Uh, this morning, I want to start with our, our mission, the mission of SF Bible. And next week, I'll look at vision, and then Pastor Roger, uh, three, uh, three, two more weeks from now, is going to tackle one of the values of SF Bible. And if you ever wonder what those are, uh, you can learn these things oftentimes in our, in our new uh, members class, our Fundamental Church Life class. And so this is just review for you if you've been here for any number of years, but I always feel like it's helpful for us to review because uh, these are, uh, the, particularly our mission is such an important part of this church. As you know, I'll be taking a sabbatical come the start of February uh, for a three-month sabbatical, so uh, I'll be resting and kind of taking time to reflect upon ministry and life, spend time with family. And I believe that the church will be in very capable hands with Pastor Ray and Pastor Roger. Uh, they are looking forward to it, along with our many lay elders here who have been with us for many years. Uh, though I know that the church will be in capable hands, I, I would do want to just encourage us uh, before I leave and uh, take off for the sabbatical. Because I want us to always to be on mission. I want us to always be on mission. You know, uh, you know, if by my departure somehow, we somehow fall off mission, we're no longer on mission, then I have somehow failed in my job. I've fallen short. I've not done what I need to do. In fact, I, feel, I believe as a church, we should always be on mission. The whole team, every member of the church, every church body, member of, the, of this body, it should be aware of what our mission is so that we're all, all having the same purpose, same uh, mission, same goal, so that even if we take one of us away, whether it's a leader or, or someone, uh, a ministry leader or a, a, a regular uh, member in the, uh, in the body, that the church will continue to be on mission, to be on point, be focused on what we need to do. SF Bible's mission uh, is often stated in a simple phrase. It's that our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. It, it's simply a reflection of the Great Commission. You know, <clears throat> you might ask, why do we need a mission statement? For 50 years, SF Bible probably functioned and grew without any kind of one clear mission statement. Why do we need one now in recent years? You know, and isn't mission statements, uh, we've all been, a, particularly if we work for larger companies, corporations, we understand it's a business practice. You have this mission statement and vision statement. And yes, it is a common business world practice to have clearly defined mission statements. But every church of Jesus Christ also has a God-given mission statement. Whether they know it or not, we have a mission, and it's given to us in God's word. And the church that knows its mission clearly will be better suited to prioritize its resources its, and its efforts for the accomplishing of the mission. Uh, we often call, our, as I mentioned already, the, our mission the, the Great Commission. We normally think of Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And I was tempted to just go back there and preach it again because you've all forgotten that sermon anyways, right? Mm, you're supposed to say, no, no, no. no. But in the Gospel of Luke... We find another record, thankfully, of Christ's mission to the church. Luke's gospel, you know, is a result of Dr. Luke, one of Paul's missionary associates. Uh, his, his, Dr. Luke's careful study and gathering of data from various eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. 
And here in chapter 24, he is recording for us the uh, Christ's resurrection and his resurrection appearances to various disciples, particularly to the 11 disciples who were gathered together in Jerusalem. These are essentially, in our text today, are essentially the final words of Jesus before his ascension into heaven. They're the last words he gives them before he leaves this earth, never to come back again until at his second coming. So you can imagine these are like any person's final words, words that weigh a little bit more on his heart, words that he wants them to remember, to take care of, to be uh, faithful with until he returns. Verse 44 to 45 uh, provide for us the introduction of our text. Kind of lost track of where I was. In 44 to 45, <clears throat> we see these two verses reveal about, uh, they reveal to us a, a preface to the instructions that he's about to give to the team. Look at what it says in verse 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, and that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. So he says, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. So he's going to reiterate essentially things that he's already spoken to them during his three-year earthly ministry with them. These are not new truths, but rather truths that Christ has already delivered to them. Make no mistake, these are familiar and essential teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. They would have grasped this. They would have remembered these words. And so these words are essentially the words that Christ directs to them, has directed to them, Time and time again. He's taught them time and time again. So the instructions that follow are going to be Christ-directed instructions or a Christ-directed mission. Paul, uh, Jesus further says that, he says, uh, tells them, reminds them that all things which are written about me, he says. So he's, what he told them about, what he talked to them and, and <clears throat> instructed them about were the things that were written about himself. Jesus is reminding them here, and as a second point, of things that are written about himself in the scriptures. You know, if you, we look at the scriptures, we see what we would find that the central focus and theme of the scriptures is the messianic king, the king of kings and the lord of lords, who is the, the one who has promised to come and to save his people. He is the, the center of, of all things. He is the center of the, the kingdom that is often spoken about in the scriptures. But make no mistake, the scriptures focus upon the Messiah, Jesus himself. And so when he spoke to them, as he had done throughout his ministry, he often spoke to them about himself, about his, his teachings, about his salvation. Their mission then would be no different than their Lord's. And the instructions that he gives to them would be the instructions that they had heard many times and that they would be Christ-centered instructions or we'll find a Christ-centered mission. Now, these things that we read about that were taught to him, taught to them about himself, were in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. But Jesus adds that these things that were written about him must be fulfilled. It is necessary to be fulfilled, these things. It was of of divine necessity, a divine destiny for these words to be filled. There is a inevitability to the word of God that must that everything that comes from God's mouth must come to pass unlike man's words 
We can't even guarantee what we speak is going to happen, much less sometimes we guarantee that it's going to be true, right? God's words, though, will of necessity of always be true. And because they are always true, whatever he speaks will be fulfilled, will come to pass, or God will not be God. Whether in the law, the prophets, or the Psalms, whatever is written is guaranteed. It's a guarantee. It's, it's, you can count on it. You read it, you can count on it that it will take place. So that when Jesus teaches them of himself in the scriptures, he speaks to them of what is essentially what we call holy writ. Holy writ, I like that word. It's a nice fancy word for the scriptures, God's word. It is, so when he teaches them, he teaches them that which is holy writ guaranteed. I like that. Uh, that's registered trademark, by the way. Holy writ guaranteed. This, this instruction that he's about to give them, this mission that he's about to give them, is not only Christ-directed, it's not only Christ-centered mission, but it's going to be that which is guaranteed. You know, we can take on many endeavors in this world, in this life. You want to start a business? Open a coffee shop? Open a, get, open, start your own NFL or football team or football league? You want to go and open a restaurant? You want to go travel around the world? Those are great endeavors, fantastic, wonderful, exciting things. But even those endeavors cannot be guaranteed. But there's one endeavor that is the mission of the church that you can take part in that is guaranteed. It's guaranteed to come to pass. It is guaranteed to be fulfilled because it's about Jesus. And that which he speaks from his word is going to happen. It's going to come to pass. Their mission is. There's the, their instructions and their mission are Christ-directed, Christ-centered, holy writ guaranteed. And what Jesus taught them and reminded them in these next verses would be that. And we'll look at, as we look at this, the rest of our, our verses, we're going to see three aspects of the church's Christ-directed, Christ-centered, holy writ guaranteed mission. This is the mission that we, you and I are on as a church of Jesus Christ. Whether part of this church or any other church, this is Jesus' mission for his church. We all state it in different ways on our mission statements and vision statements, but these are essential aspects of our mission, and may we be encouraged as we look at these. So I want to give you the first aspect of our mission that's from the Lord, and that is our message. It's about our, is about our message, the message of our mission, and that is our message is Christ's death and resurrection. Verse 46, look at that with me. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. Jesus reminded his disciples what is written in the scriptures. Again, it's, it's all about him, right? It points to him. And so he teaches them that which is written. Not only do Old Testament scriptures teach about Christ and his salvation in general, but specifically we find in the Old Testament scriptures that he would suffer and die and that he would rise from the dead on the third day. Now, many Israelites, of course, when they, <clears throat> when they heard Jesus talking about this and when they heard the apostles teaching about this, they did not accept it. It was a stumbling block to them because it was unexpected for them. They did not expect a Messiah who would come and suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day, even though those prophecies were, were in the Old Testament scriptures. They looked for a ruler who would reign over their enemies, as we saw many times in Isaiah they saw the many promises of his triumph, but missed the promises of his death and resurrection, but they were there. When, just to give you a couple of passages, I just throw up 
uh, various references to Jesus' death and resurrection. These are some of the key ones. The key one that we already looked at is Isaiah 53. For there in Isaiah 53, we find prophecies of both his death and his, res- his resurrection. What's more, his death is promised as early as Genesis 3.15 in that proto-evangelion, that first gospel, gospel promise. His death is foreshadowed in all the sacrifices of the Old Testament law. It's prophesied in Psalm 22. His resurrection is prophesied in not only Isaiah 53, but in Psalm 16.10, and it's foreshadowed in Jonah 1.17. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the message of the gospel, and that is our message. It's the message, it's the message that was prophesied in the Old Testament, and it should be ours. It was Jesus's. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4, we see that this gospel message is, Paul affirms this gospel message. <coughs> Excuse me. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. So he said, this is the gospel. Which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul <clears throat> makes pretty clear that the gospel is this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and Christ rose on the third day according to the scriptures. Again, he too appeals to the written word, the scriptures, for authority. And he says, the scriptures teach us that Christ would die and Christ would rise from the grave. This was not only Paul's gospel that he preached, he preaches to the Corinthians here, but this was the gospel, the, the very same gospel that Jesus Christ would preach as well. We read in Mark 1, 14 and 15 of how Jesus <clears throat> came, and he had take, after John had been taken to captivity, into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, that same gospel, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. See, so the, Paul's gospel, Jesus' gospel, is to be our gospel as well. The gospel of Christ's death and resurrection. Every church has a message. Every organization often has a message as well. And for many churches, it's about love. And that's not a bad uh, message. Certainly, love is a key ask, attribute of God. God loves you. Uh, we know that we ought to love others. And so when you come here, we, we, we should love you too. Or at least you should feel our love. And we would invite people to come as you are and find God's love here. For other churches, it's about good deeds. And that's certainly something taught in the scriptures. We want to do good deeds. We want to make this world a better place. We want to improve our fellow man's condition. We want to help people in their needs. We want to go out and we want to make a difference. We want to be salt and light in this world. And there are some churches that are about community, or that's the new word for fellowship. It's about fellowship. It's about finding connections in church. It's about having personal relations, inter, interrelations where we really will belong. We can, I know that we're part of something that's, that's bigger than ourselves, that we, we share the things that we have in common in Jesus Christ. We are loved. We are like a family. We're not just a, an organization, but we, we will live and die together. Now, those are different messages the church can have. But for SF Bible, and I pray that for every church of Jesus Christ, that our message would be the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
That is our message. Christ died for our sins, and Christ rose from the grave on the third day. You know, <clears throat> it's why we have on our wall a cross. Uh, you may wonder, if some of you, especially if you're new to a church, say, what is that cross? And then you might go and you Google cross and you find out what, the, oh, man, that's a symbol of torturous death. Why does a church have a symbol of torturous death on the back of their wall? Because it's a constant reminder to us, the number one, that we deserve a torturous death. Much worse, in fact, than a torturous death because of our sins against the holy God. And number two, most importantly, that Jesus died on such a cross. And he died in our place. He took our sins on our behalf. And that he rose from the grave on that third day as a confirmation of that his death provided the victory over death. That no more is there the, the sting of death. Sin has been paid for by his work on the cross. The death of resurrection is our message. It's our testimony. When I listen to someone's salvation testimony, I'm, also listen, I'm, also, I'm often listening for the gospel. Does this person understand that salvation is based upon the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do they have somewhere in there the, the substitutionary atonement, the idea that Jesus died in my place and that he, he rose from the grave? If you're a member of this church, you're part of the body here, I, I trust you understand this. I trust that when you share your testimony, this is part of your message. This, this is, comes out in some way that somewhere you understood that Jesus died for me and he rose from the grave so that I might have eternal life if, because I believed in him. Not only is that your message, I pray that's not in your testimony, but I pray that's your message. Many of us have ministries of teaching responsibility here in the church. You may be teaching peers, teaching older adults, teaching children. But even whatever we teach, our, whatever we teach should always be driven back to the central message of the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection. Does everything that we teach keep going back to that? You know, the danger sometimes in, I think for us, those who were, were in children's ministry, when I used to teach children's ministry, is just to simply teach the morals. You know, definitely we teach, should teach morals, no doubt. And that's part of scripture. But that when we teach the morals of doing good or speaking the truth or being kind and loving, that these things we do because of Jesus Christ, because he loved us. And we love him and we want to be, be kind to others. And then even when we talk about morality, that hopefully we're reminding the children that we, when you fail, because we often do fail, that's why we need Jesus you see, because we fail him sometimes, and that's why Jesus came to die for our sins. And so we, and then we hopefully we're doing this in every lesson that we, in every uh, teaching we do, that it's always points back to the gospel. You know, you can teach about prophecies or end times, Old Testament law, wisdom, or psalms of worship, but teach them always in a way that points back to this central gospel theme, pointing back to the Savior. Oh, but maybe some of you have heard that the gospel message, well, we don't like to focus on that. I don't like to start there because to tell you the truth, the gospel turns people off. Yeah, it does because it tells people they're sinners. It talks about a place called hell. You actually believe that? Hell? Is that a real place? Really? Where people punish in fire and darkness for eternity? Is that the kind of God you believe in? 
And you tell me if I don't believe in your Jesus, if I do not repent and believe in him, I'm, I'm going to go there? That's where my, lo- my loved ones who died just recently, who they didn't believe in Jesus, are you telling me that's where they're at? Your message is offensive to me. Yes, it is. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that it is offensive, but it, that, does not, that, that should never be a reason for us to shy away from our message. And though we are tempted to lull people in here to with talks of love, good deeds, and community, and more, you know, we have to serve them, you know, good coffee. I'm all for those things. But all those things except for coffee flow out of the gospel. They come out of this gospel message that we want to proclaim. We must remember Paul's words to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom. Proclaim to you, proclaim to you the, the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That Jesus died for you. He was crucified for you. When we gather as a church, our message is one and simple. It is Christ, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. A message that is foolishness to some ears and a stumbling block to other ears. But it is our message nevertheless because it is the power of God for salvation. And this message is a part of our mission. And this leads us then to the second aspect of our mission of our, that is our mission. Here we find Jesus giving the explicit mission to his disciples. Our mission, <coughs> excuse me, is to proclaim salvation to all nations. Verse 47, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus goes on here to further say what is written in Scripture. Because of the death and resurrection of Christ, a call to repentance is then to be proclaimed. This is what Scripture writes about. Notice that Jesus didn't say that Scripture says that you should repent for forgiveness of sins, but that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed. Obviously, that... Repenting for forgiveness is taught elsewhere in Scripture, but that's not what Jesus emphasizes here. <coughs> Rather, Jesus emphasizes their mission. You know, that it's the verb is the key idea is not repentance, but the key idea is proclaiming. This is what you are to proclaim. We're to call people to salvation. We're to call them to repent and believe in the salvation that has been provided for them in Jesus Christ. This is a a call to salvation that we find throughout the scriptures when God offers salvation to anyone who will come to him. The call that we learn a little bit more about this call to salvation in our text, in in this verse, we find about five things here we can learn. The call to salvation is, first of all, a call to repentance. It's a call to repentance. Some of us may find it strange that it doesn't say uh, a call to believe. 
That it doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say, and that believing for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. There are some times we in our, we've simplified the gospel to where it's just simply, it's about believing. Believing in, in simply faith, faith alone, and it is faith alone. But faith that saves is never alone. Faith also comes along with it, repentance. They are often seen as two sides of a coin. You cannot have one without the other. Jesus sometimes would call people to believe. Sometimes he would call people to repent. Sometimes he would say, repent and believe. So they are go hand in hand. Faith is often seen as turning to the Lord, while repentance is described as turning away from sin. Uh, repentance is really a change of mind. A change of mind that says, no, I'm no longer going to go my way. I'm, I'm going to turn from my way to God's ways. Both are necessary. But it is a call to salvation. It's a call to turn from our sins. You cannot come to Jesus and not be willing, not be ready to turn from your sinful ways. It is the call to be saved. It is the call to repentance. Secondly, the call to salvation, though, is also is a promise of forgiveness of sins. This is a great, wonderful thing about salvation. The salvation call is that it promises us forgiveness. That the one who repents and believes in Christ's death will have their sins forgiven in Christ. Because it is our sin that condemns us to judgment and eternal death. It is our sin that earns and deserves God's wrath. Unless God forgives us of our sins, we would all remain condemned to eternal punishment. But because of God's mercy in Christ, our sins are forgiven. As we often sing in, in the song that's based on Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Thirdly, the call to salvation is in the name of Jesus. It is through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. It's his character. It's his work together all, all in one. It's through G the person of Jesus Christ that there is salvation. There is salvation in no other name. Oftentimes, and I remember myself and uh, unbelieving people in my lives, would often say that all religions are the same. They are like uh, different roads to Rome. They all get there. But Jesus is not Muhammad and is not Buddha and is not Nirvana or whatever uh, ultimate salvation religions choose to have. Jesus is the only way. We'd all, we have heard many times in John 14, 6 of how Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's a very exclusive statement by Jesus. He is the only way. Only through Jesus do people come to the Father. And then Acts 4.12, the apostles preach, and there is salvation in no one else, but there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. <coughs> That's why our message is Christ's death and resurrection. None of the other world, religion, world leaders, religions could die for the sins of mankind. And some of them may have died, but none of them rose from the grave to not die again. Fourthly, the call of, to salvation is an invitation to everyone. It's an invitation to everyone. It's to all nations, this proclamation is to. It's not just to Israel, but it's to everyone. 
And we've seen this in, in Isaiah several times, that Jesus is a light to the nations. You know, and I would add, especially in, in our recent news, you know, uh, debating like uh, people coming from different nations and all this, and, and I will not really think, think much about the merits of uh, what is spoken in the halls of the White House. But I'd like to simply say this. The gospel is for all nations. It's for all nations, whether they have something to offer to us or not. It's the nations near or far, rich or poor, strong or weak, ally or enemy. The gospel is for everyone. It's for all nations. Think of the nation that you hate the most. You know, if some of you guys come from more immigrant families. You talk to your, you know, I have a Chinese background, so I talk to my Chinese parents. I could name, but I won't name it here, the nation that they would say, oh, no, we hate that nation. They did this to us. Maybe you have come from a different culture, and there's some other enemy nation. You think, oh, we hate that nation. Here, most of us who raised in America, we learn to love everybody, accept everyone. That's great, and that we should. Because, but I believe that becomes because that sh- that arises because we have a Christian ethos that is driven by this gospel, a love for all that welcomes all to the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter who you are, you are welcome to come and find salvation in Christ. It is our message. It's for everyone. This is our mission, to proclaim salvation to all the nations. But notice it begins in Jerusalem. It begins where the disciples were. And this is fifthly, the fifth point, is that the call to salvation is begun at home. It begins at the Jerusalem of where people are at, if you will. It begins in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our community. You know, if if, uh, we will not ever share the gospel out there until we are sharing the gospel in, in here. When people come into our doors, in our midst, we're sharing in our, in our families with our own children. You know, I, sometimes we, we wonder, why focus on children's ministry? You know, I, I really love children's ministry. Why I love children's ministry? Because there is the largest week-by-week group of unbelievers that come into this church every single week of the year. The largest group, unbelievers. You want a missions field? It's your, our children's ministry. If, you don't, if we don't share the gospel to our children here, you don't even bother going out there and share the gospel with children out there. We're not ready. Well, no, go bother and do that too. But start sharing here. Our, our homes, our families, our workplaces, our schools, we need to share it. We're beginning in our homes. This is our mission, brothers and sisters, to proclaim salvation to all nations in this way. It really is just simply a, a, another a restatement of the Great Commission. We're going to make disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. And it begins with the proclamation of the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. We are to speak the word of God and the power of God. What's more, when we, uh, even when we bring people to saving faith, our work is not over. The gospel is not just for, uh, the proclamation of Christ's death and resurrection is not just for, for unbelievers. That's something that you and I need every single day of our lives. You, and I, trust me, brothers and sisters, the closer I get to death, the more that promise of resurrection is sure looking good. Because Christ rose from the grave, I know that one day I'm going to rise from the grave. The gospel is for, and for every, every, every trial, every trouble throughout our days. 
that whenever we face, we can see everything in light of the gospel. Whatever we're, we're, we're struggling with, whatever we're fighting over, whatever we're crying about, we can see it in light of the gospel, and, and oftentimes that will give comfort and hope. Is this our mission? Is this the focus of our ministry for the Lord? Is, if you're a ministry leader, can you communicate how your ministry aids and is aiming for this fulfillment of this mission? We must understand our mission because our mission helps us to prioritize, again, what and where we spend our resources and efforts as a church. And as you, many of you know, you're going to come to our church family meeting in next week, uh, 1.30 p.m. God has given us great amount of resources here, both human, financial, facilities. And how can we use these resources for the greatest advancement of our mission? As we grow, do we end up, do we buy a bigger building? Or do we plant churches? Do we bring on more staff or do we support more missionaries? There are oftentimes choices that we have to make in ministry and our mission directs and guides us. I, I rejoice and I'm thankful because even just as an encouragement, last Sunday we had one of our missionaries come back, uh, Brother Aaron Hong come, and, and he shared with us just an update on his short-term mission in Kyrgyzstan. And those of you in first service, you saw it, you heard it. If you were in second service, you missed it. But it was encouraging to hear the fruits of his ministry. And, what's, and I rejoice when I hear what God was doing in, him, in and through the ministry there because what he was doing there is not just what he's doing there, but it's what we are doing there. It's part of what we do because we as a church have sent him off. We support him in prayer, and some of you support him financially. God's, and God used him to point people to Christ, disciple others. And the joy that, and, and hearing that report is a joy for us because that is part of us fulfilling our mission. To make Jesus disciples of Jesus Christ, and that begins with proclaiming this salvation. What's more, our mission to proclaim salvation to all nations is empowered by God. We're empowered by God for this mission. And that's the third thing we note, the third aspect of our, uh, of our salvation, of our mission, is that our might is dependent upon the Holy Spirit. This doesn't just depend upon us. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus said, verse 48 and 49, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus reminds the disciples that they were eyewitnesses of these things. Particularly, what are these things? Well, these things are his death and resurrection. They were eyewitnesses of that, verse 46. But even going back to verse 44, they are eyewitnesses or they're witnesses to the teachings of Christ. They're the ones who actually heard what Jesus taught. They saw his illustrations that he would point to. They are witnesses of his words that he spoke to them. And these witnesses, these disciples, as witnesses, then told others. So that throughout history, each generation of Christians would then be passed on the testimony of the previous generation, who were then to pass it on to the next generation testifying again to what they know of Christ. Of course, you just imagine 
if you've ever played the uh, icebreaker telephone, you, know, you ever do that? You haven't? Oh, okay, we'll, we'll do it in Sunday school class today. Uh, <clears throat> but you know that icebreaker where you're kind of whispering each other's ear down the line, some phrase. By the end of the line, they are to state the phrase. And of course, it's like, it's not even close to the original. So, didn't you hear what I just whispered in your ear? Somewhere along the way, as we pass on the word, it just gets twisted. People leave out things. People add things. And so the message gets, uh, oftentimes, gets distorted. And that would happen if the witness of Christ's words were passed on simply orally from one generation to the next. But God protected his word by having that testimony recorded for us in the scriptures, as you know, in the New Testament scriptures. The apostles, the prophets, they wrote it down. They, we have the gospels, we have the epistles. So then, then, so then, each generation could not only does not only learn from the previous generation of what they learned, what they heard, but then each generation would also be able to look to the scriptures as the ultimate witness and confirmation of the truth. So, in a way, this is really cool. These disciples were the eyewitnesses; they wrote it down. And so that every generation who looks to the scriptures for the truth of who Jesus is are only a generation removed from eyewitnesses. We're we're second generation witnesses because of this word. That's mind blowing. That's just awesome. This is so encouraging. It, is a, it hopefully affirms and, and builds up your faith in, in, in the truth of God's word. But you know, inevitably, as man is prone to do, we doubt, don't we? The further removed from the times of Christ, the more we tend to doubt, is God's word true? It hasn't changed. It's still, tra- we have the, the original, uh, we have the, a pretty good uh, a copy of the original autographs now because of all the, the thousands of manuscripts that exist, that are in existence. These translations, these translations are based upon those manuscripts. But even more, but nevertheless, as, as time moves on, people tend to doubt God's word. Even we, as God's people, we doubt God's word. We doubt whether it's true. We, we open up to Genesis 1 and we read it. Oh, hold up. That cannot be true. Creation in six days? There must be another answer. The science tells me otherwise. Even if doubt did not exist, though, we could also just think of the, the challenges of, of the disciples. How could finite men Remember even all that Jesus spoke to them over that three-year period. How many of you guys remember even what I'm going to say today? And I'm, of course, I'm not as good of a teacher as Jesus, so you know, that's why. But three years worth of teaching, how are they going to remember all that? How are they going to pass it on in a way that would be consistent or accurate? Well, for weak and finite man, God gives us his Holy Spirit. Verse 49 is, is the promise of the Father, the promise of power from on high. And this is the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who ensures that the truth will be, that the truth will be preserved, that, the, uh, that they will remember all that they need to do. In many ways, in these verses here, in 
are, are, find its parallel in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and I want to just read for you verse 4 and 5 and verse 8 as well. When Jesus gathered together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. They're all going to receive the Holy Spirit. They're going to be placed in the body of Christ. We're going to talk about baptism of the Spirit in our Sunday school class later on. But, say, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. See, the disciples would receive power from the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of Christ. And certainly what this means is for the individual follower of Christ that he or she would have spiritual boldness and conviction to proclaim Christ. Understandably, when we go and share the gospel, we are sometimes afraid. Particularly the more, we're, the more people kind of pleasing kind of people we are, the more we like to be liked, the more fearful we can become. But the Holy Spirit gives us boldness and conviction to, to go and share that truth. Paul writes about it in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. He says to them, he's talking about he, when they delivered the gospel, for our gospel did not come to you in word only. That is, our gospel came to you also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction just as you know what kind of man we proved to be among for your sake. That is, it came to them in the power of the Holy Spirit with full conviction. That's not in the hearers, but that's in the conviction of those who are speaking. When you're convicted that something's true, you, you'll say it with power, with, with boldness. You won't say it with uncertainty. The Spirit of God will convict you of these truths, that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ matters. And when it matters, we'll, we'll want to tell it others in a most loving, passionate leading way possible. But the Holy Spirit would also teach and help the disciples to remember all that Jesus said. In John 14, 26, but the help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. This is how they will remember. In fact, not only this is how they will remember, but the Holy Spirit helps us to remember. Sometimes when we're sharing the gospel, you know, and, and someone may throw in one of those curveball questions at us, but that, and we may but it's the power of the Spirit that may at that time bring an answer from Scripture, truth, so we might give them an answer from what Scripture says. What's more, though, the Spirit doesn't, not only does, as the sending of the Spirit gives power to the, those who are the communicators, the speakers, but the Spirit also works a power in the listeners. He would bring conviction to those who hear. Listen to John 16, verse 7 and 8. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if, did I, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Sometimes, myself included, and when we're, a lot of times when we're younger, we say things with a lot of zeal and fervor. Hopefully that reflects our, convic our conviction. But sometimes it's just our own uh, efforts to try to convict people. You know, you can just simply say it in the most calm, cool manner. Even if you might, say, you might even say a little impassioned. But if it is the truth of Jesus Christ, no matter how you say it, with excitement and zeal, with simply stating it for what it is simply, the power of the Holy Spirit will take that word, will convict the hearts of those who hear 
You don't have to do the work. The Spirit does the work of deliverance. But most important of all, the Spirit of God does the power of the one thing that no one can do in this world. None of us could do on our own, in fact. That is, the, the Spirit does the powerful work of regenerating the dead hearts of those who hear the gospel, so they might respond to the gospel. Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 5 to 7 says this. Jesus answered, he's talking to Nicodemus, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. So Jesus says that you need to be born again of the Spirit. See, all of us are dead in our sins. When you're dead, you can do nothing about your deadness. No one just uh, revives himself from the dead. We need our, the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, in fact, our best efforts in witnessing are in vain. <coughs> you know, imagine, I was just thinking about it, kind of just toying in my head. Imagine if we as a church outsourced all our evangelism. You know, you know it's kind of like we're, we get so large, we got, we're a big, giant church. We need to outsource it, you know. We got to hire some parachurch uh, agency to come alongside to do our evangelism or, you know, you know that's good business, right? Because if you're a big company, you might do that even with your sales. You might go hire someone to do your sales or your marketing. And I love this, Hank. So, uh, uh, we would, you know, make sure that we hire the most eloquent and friendly of sales representatives. Uh, we would make sure that we have the best, most up-to-date customer relation management software. I'm sure I know where we'd find that. Uh, we would have all the best data on our target group's needs and, and the most effective solutions and very, a variety of solutions that would uh, target those needs. We would have regular effective communication throughout the whole process. So if you have questions about the gospel, we make sure those questions get answered. We'd make sure that we keep talking to you. We keep reaching out to you from believer to from unbeliever to believer. You know, imagine we did that all in a holy way. That would be pretty cool, kind of, at least from my standpoint. That'd be kind of neat. Uh, of course, we would be shirking our duties. But without the Spirit, even we use the best witnessing team. Without the Spirit of God, we would have either an empty church or worse, and my fear is that we'd have a church full of people, full of unregenerate people who came because we were skillful enough to make them feel that their felt needs could be met here, but not their true needs. We need the Spirit of God to do a work in dead people's hearts to cause them to come to see the truth that in reality, who are we? We are sinners. What do we need? We need salvation and forgiveness of sins. Where do we find this? Nowhere else but in Jesus. How? Because he died on the cross in place of me and in place of you. And he rose from the grave to show that he conquered death, sin and death. And this forgiveness and this salvation can be yours through repentance and faith. 
our might to fill our mission is dependent upon the Holy Spirit to bring about the regeneration of heart until so that people might respond to the gospel. And so we need to make sure that we are people who possess the Spirit. We need to make sure that we are Christians first and foremost. But secondly, as we go about our work, then we need to be people who are filled with the Spirit, dependent upon the Spirit as we go about this mission. That we speak the Word of God in the power of God, dependent upon the Spirit. As I stated in the beginning, I'm looking forward to my sabbatical. And uh, mainly I'll be resting. But my... I have a ministry focus, something I want to think about while I'm gone, something that as I think about, I'll be able to hopefully get some better ideas I can come back and share with the elders and that together we might move forward. And that is particularly, I want to be focused on how to lead and transition a growing medium-sized church that we are because things must change as we grow. We can't keep doing the things the same way in the same way. The message doesn't change, certainly, but there are the things that, uh, that may change as far as how we go about doing things they may help this church to grow better. One of the articles that I've been reading, reflecting upon, and I will spend some further time thinking about, is one by Tim Keller, pastor of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. And in this article, I think it's the article's called uh, Leadership and Church Size Dynamics. Uh, he writes, records for us basically 10 things, 10 trends or changes that come to churches as they grow larger. These will happen in almost every church as they grow larger. This tends to be what happens. And he kind of lists 10 different things. I won't give you all of them. You know, just for instance, that the, the complexity of the ministry increases as you grow larger. Um, they, there's a shifting from responsibilities from lay, from lay people to staff people and, and back in, in different ways. Uh, there, oftentimes the quality of various programs tends to increase as we grow larger. But the one I want to focus on even for today is that is the tenth thing that he says, and that is that that this the, that the change that takes place as churches grow larger is that there is a greater emphasis on vision and strengths. That the church are going to focus more on their vision and strengths. And I want to read the, the quote that he gives. It's at the end with this. Oh, this will be kind of our uh, launching our, into our close. Further, he says, the larger the church, the more a distinctive vision becomes important to its members. The reason for being in a smaller church is relationships. The reason for putting up with all the changes and difficulties of a larger church is to get mission done. People join a larger church because of the vision. So the particular mission needs to be clear. Now, I don't know if you find this to be true. <clears throat> but if that is true, this is just uh, you know, ob- observations from Pastor Keller uh, in his experience as a pastor of a, basically a church that grew from a small church to a a megachurch today. If this is true, then making sure that we have a clear mission and vision of what we are going, what we are doing, is going to be helpful for us for our continued growth as a church. You, know, you may not know the twenty people sitting around you right now, right? That's inevitably what happens. We've been growing; we just don't know everybody around us. You may not know them, but if you, we as a church know our mission you will know that we are all here for the same purpose, for the same mission, same vision. We're all here to accomplish the one thing, to make disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. We're here to accomplish God's great commission for God's great glory. And when I look around people and we're clear on our mission, we're clear on our vision, and I understand that's what I'm here for, then yes, as the church grows and changes happen, there are things that are making me uncomfortable, 
definitely that's stretching me. Uh, we lose that family feel, you know, that what makes us want to stay is because we're here on mission. I may not have that family feel for all 150 of you gathered in this room. It might just be 20 of us together. But everyone that walks these doors, that joins the membership of the church, we're going to have a few more join us next week. We're all here on mission. We're on a mission to make disciples of Christ to the glory of God. And that, brothers and sisters, is a great endeavor. It's Christ-delivered, Christ-centered, holy writ guaranteed. Great endeavor to be part of. Let's be part of it. Let's be on mission. Let's pray. In Jesus' name, thank Lord, we pray that you would cause us as a church to take up this mission, continue to be faithful to fulfill it, so that you would be glorified. We pray that if there's anyone here who does not yet know Jesus, that even as we talked about this mission, that, they, that you would open their hearts, Lord. Your spirit would regenerate them, cause them to be convicted of the truth, help them to, to, to bow the knee and, and come before you and acknowledge that they have been going their own way and that has been the wrong way and that they need you. They need your ways. They need to be on, involved in that which matters and for eternity. They need to know you, your son and bring them to saving faith, Lord, and help us as a church to point others whether they are in this church body or in our church midst or whether they are in our community. Lord, we pray that you cause us to be faithful to make disciples of all nations. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Head on to Sunday school class downstairs uh, in a few moments. You're dismissed.